Welcome to the Fair Forest Podcast. Here you can find sermon, Bible study, and devotional audio from Fair Forest Church of God in Spartanburg, South Carolina, a place of hope, healing, and restoration. It is our prayer that this content introduces you to Jesus and deepens your relationship with Him. We're going to read the text in just a moment. We're going to be in Hebrews 11 and Genesis chapter 5. But I want to begin by walking us into some realities this morning. I'm gonna talk for the next four weeks uh, about this idea of preparing ourselves. So the series for the next four weeks is called Prepare Yourself. Say that with me, say prepare yourself. Like I said earlier, the new year doesn't magically change what you walked into the year with. There There is no magic eraser that takes away the things that you brought with you. If you made a terrible decision on December 31st, you don't get a mulligan on January 1. You have to walk out the implications of the decisions that you made. That's just part of life. But I do believe that because God created cycles, seasons, and calendars. See, God created cycles because it said that after six days he rested, and so there was this completion of time in the beginning. The way that God created the world, he created it to run in seasons and cycles. So we have 24 hours in a day. We have seven days in a week. We have you know, 30, 31 days in a month, except February, which is a really weird month, and we just kind of throw that to the side. But uh, for the most part, 30 or 31 days in the month, we have... 365 days in the year. Uh, we have four seasons. We have, these, are, these are just the ways that we look at life cyclically and seasonally. And so as we cross over into a new year, we have a unique opportunity. I believe God creates those cycles and seasons so that we have opportunities to say, okay, what have I done and what am I doing? Where have I been and where am I going? And so I want to talk to you about preparing yourself for where you're going. Preparation for the life of the believer, if you want to be successful as a Christian, is not optional, it is essential. Preparation in the life of the believer is not optional, it is essential. And really, if you want to be successful at anything, preparation is essential. I I read this story about a guy named Roald Amundsen. Roald Amundsen, in 1911, led the first expedition to the South Pole. But though he is famous for that as an explorer, Amundsen is actually just as famous, if not more so, at least in his time with his contemporaries, for being a master of preparation. So Amundsen knew long before he ever set sail for the South Pole that there were things he was going to need to do over the years that led up to that launch in order to be able to make it to the South Pole. Let me, let me tell you something. This is, this is really in, impressive. So he knew he was going to have to become a master ship's captain, which required training and apprenticeship. And so he had to leave his home and go to a port where he could actually receive that training. It was about 2,000 miles away from his house. He could have taken a ship. He could have taken a buggy. He could have taken a horse. But Amundsen, because he knew that there would be a physically rigorous requirement of him sailing to the South Pole, decided to bicycle 2,000 miles to, to take this course. Because he knew where he was going. Because he had set a goal, he had set a destination, he had set his vision on the South Pole. He knew that there was a chance that they would either get stuck in ice or be shipwrecked at some point. And he decided that he needed to know what it was like to eat raw dolphin. So without ever having to, he didn't have to eat it, 
But he decided, I need to know if I can eat it, if it gives me energy, if it makes me sick, and what it tastes like. And so Amundsen, long before he ever set sail for the South Pole, ate raw dolphin to see what would happen. He lived for a certain period of time with Inuit and Eskimo people who, who had, for generations, existed in sub-zero temperatures. And he wanted to know what is best practice for these people. So he learned how to run dogs on sleds. He learned how to ski. And he learned that Inuit people never move very fast and they wear loose clothing because if they move fast, they sweat. And if they wear tight clothing, then that sweat gets on the clothes and then their bodies can suffer from hypothermia. He learned all of this years in advance of going on this expedition. His preparation was legendary. And this is what he says. This was his philosophy. You don't wait until you're in an unexpected storm to discover that you need more strength and endurance. You prepare with intensity all the time so that when the conditions turn against you, you can draw from a deep reservoir of strength. But also and equally, you prepare with intensity so that when conditions turn in your favor, you can strike hard and maximize your goals. I think some of us don't know where we're going past 24 hours. I think some of y'all know that the kids gotta be back at school tomorrow or Tuesday. You know that you've gotta clock in tomorrow at some point or maybe tonight if you're working third. And that's about it. You know when the national championship game's gonna take place, but you're not really sure what you're gonna do with your own life in about a month. I ask you the question this morning, what are you preparing yourself for? What are you preparing yourself for? What are you getting ready for? Do you have anything to get ready for? And and I'll tell you this, I believe that we're always preparing for something. And we're either preparing to succeed or we're preparing to fail. Because if you're not preparing for something specifically, then you're preparing to fail for whatever comes up. There is no general sense of preparation. You want a better marriage or a worse one? Prepare or don't prepare. You want to be a better parent or a worse parent? You will either prepare or you won't prepare. You want success or you want failure? You'll prepare or you won't prepare. Some of us are preparing for unemployment because we're doing a terrible job at work. Some of us are preparing for divorce because we can't get over ourselves and serve our spouse. Some of us are preparing for our kids to be crazier than we ever dreamed they would be because we refuse to stand firm in the knowledge of God and share what Jesus Christ has taught us about our kids and their life and their destiny. What are you preparing for? What are you preparing for? So as we come into Hebrews 11, 5, and 6, there's something that I want to start with here because I believe that first and foremost, the first thing that we prepare for this year is this. We want to prepare the environment of our lives for the presence of God to dwell richly with us. We want to prepare the environment of our lives. So on your bullet, and I think it says prepare your culture, I've actually changed that title to prepare your environment because it seems to make more sense. I'll talk about culture about halfway through this sermon, but prepare your environment makes more sense, so if you want to change that, that's okay. But prepare the environment of your life so that the presence of God can richly dwell with you. This is the first and foremost. Everything else comes after this. And so what I would want you to do, and you can take your phone, you can take a tablet, if you use a paper calendar, you can do that. I I would challenge you this afternoon, today, at some point, 
flip all the way to the back of that calendar in December where there's nothing except the typed words Christmas Day, right? Because you haven't written anything in there. Most of us haven't anyway. And on December 31st, write down, I will be a place where the Holy Spirit dwells in power. See, what happens is if we look 12 months in advance and decide that's who I'm going to be, By the end of this year, what we do then is we start to reverse engineer the process and figure out what the journey looks like from January 2 to December 31st because there's something that you and I need more than everything else and that's the presence of God. Half of you believe me, the other half gotta be convinced. That's why I'm here though. You're lucky I'm here for that. There is is nothing that you need more in your life than the presence of God, to know the heart of God, to to know the mind of Christ, to start to adopt who he is. By, By being in his presence, you are changed to be more like him. So if you write on that calendar, December 31st, I am going to be a place where the presence of God dwells intimately. I am going to be a place where the presence of God continually influences and affects. Then we walk back and we say, okay, what does it look like to get there? See, I think there's a guy in the Bible in Hebrews 11 and then the rest of his story is in Genesis chapter five who figured out how to do this. And there's really only one thing I wanna tell you this morning because there's only one thing about the life of Enoch that helps us move from our starting point to our ending point. And so I'm gonna read from Hebrews 11, verses five and six. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We talked last year in Hebrews 11 about the idea that the word commended, if you work it back and try and understand what it means there, it actually means that you become the possessor of a testimony. And so look at that second sentence in verse five. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Look look closely at the timeline. He wasn't commended after he made it into the presence of God in some heavenly realm. He made it so that God's presence came to be with him long before he ever left this earth. He became the possessor of a testimony. What was unseen became seen in his life because he chose to live a certain way so the presence of God descended and came near to him. Enoch figured out how to make his life a place of pleasure. For some of you, you have a place of pleasure, don't you? I'm not gonna look over at Buck C, but I know that some of you believe that QT is the promised land. Donuts, those taquitos on the rollers, ices, any number of drinks hiding behind a refrigerated door. Uh, You've got gum and candy bars, king-size candy bars. You've got coffee, which their coffee is actually pretty good, to be perfectly honest. You've got You've got hot pretzels and, and grilled cheese sandwiches. And, and I mean, it is, I mean it's, it's really just one of those places that almost feels like God just touched earth with his finger and said, this is my holy place. Will you come and dwell with me at the QT? My kids love it because my son loves blue slushies. He doesn't care what flavor it is. He cares what color it is. That's just weird. 
It's a place that every time we pass, if we don't have a specific and defined destination in the car, if he doesn't know that we're going to Walmart, Publix, you know, wherever we're going, then if we pass a QT, he's like, can we stop in there? I want to get a slushie, maybe a donut, maybe a candy bar, maybe eight or nine other things that are going to rot my teeth out of my head before I'm 18. It's a place of pleasure. See, Enoch figured out how to make his life a place that God wanted to be. Look back in Genesis chapter five. Let's, let's look at Enoch's story when it appears first. Hmm. Chapter five, verse 21 is where we're going. When Enoch had lived 65 years, how many years 65 or older? Say amen. Several of you. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. How many of you at 65 just became a parent? Less of you. You're going to find out why Enoch sought God, aren't you? You go ahead and have a kid at 65. See, if you're not on your knees a whole lot of the time praying to God. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah. Don't you love that? I love that expression. He walked with God after he fathered Methuselah. 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. We see, it seems anyway, in the way that the Bible writes about Enoch's life, is that at 65 years old, something changed. There was a catalyst in Enoch's life. Something shifted. We don't know if it was happiness or tragedy. Some people have said it's because he gave birth to the son and he realized that there's a legacy now that he is going to pass on to another generation. Maybe that was it. At this time, because of the age of people on the earth, his, his relative Adam, the one that lived in the Garden of Eden, would have still been alive. So maybe Adam came to the baby shower and was talking to Enoch about walking with God in the cool of the day and it sparked something inside of him. We don't know what the catalyst was. Truly, what we know is that something happened so that Enoch decided things have to change. See, I think we want to know what happened, so we're on the lookout for what it is that God did for Enoch to see if God does it for us. But really, I want you to hear me closely. The catalyst in your life might be different than the catalyst in my life or the catalyst in Enoch's life. It doesn't have to be the same thing that sparks that desire. The only thing that matters is that we respond when God sparks it. There's going to be some of you today, maybe the course of this month, maybe the course of this year, that God is going to breathe on your heart and you're going to realize that you're very dissatisfied with the life you've been living, with the way you've been experiencing things, and God will be the one who's whispering to you, I'm calling you deeper. I'm not making you dissatisfied because your life is falling apart. I'm making you dissatisfied because I have more for you. There is such a thing as a sacred dissatisfaction. Where God steps into the middle of your life and says, you will lose your taste for all the things that once gave you pleasure because I want you to find your pleasure in me. This is not arrogance on God's part. 
This is not narcissism on God's part. This is actually God understanding what's best for his people. Because if we find our pleasure or our meaning in something other than God, then we are by definition finding our pleasure and our meaning in something that is temporary. But God wants us to find our pleasure and our meaning in something that is eternal. And there is nothing else that is eternal other than him in the way that he is eternal. In fact, the psalmist says in, in chapter 16 that, there, that in, in the presence of God, there is, there is joy. And at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. There is nothing but joy and pleasure in the presence of God. The only frustration, hear me now, this is, this is for some of you, this is a nugget you're going to take with you. For some of you, the presence of God frustrates you. But it does not frustrate you because it's not filled with joy and pleasure. It frustrates you because you have to surrender yourself to it and you don't want to. The hostility that you feel at times when people want to talk about Jesus. The frustration that boils up inside of you. That's not because God isn't satisfying. It's because you and I can tend to be stubborn So I encourage you, first of all, when the catalyst is present, when the word comes to you, when the breath of God breathes over you, do not ignore it, don't run away from it, figure out how to respond to it. It will happen. I speak that over your life, it's gonna happen. Some of you, it's already happened. Some of you, it's still happening. Some of you are trying to work out what it feels like to actually answer the voice of God as he speaks into your life. And so here's what I'll tell you, and I have to move, I don't have all the time in the world here. What we see in Hebrews 11 is a clue to interpreting Genesis chapter five. Because Hebrews 11 changes the language a little bit to give us insight into what it means that Enoch walked with God. Some of us want this to be, you know, an afternoon walk down a dirt road with the Lord. We give him a devotional time. We're going to take a stroll outside and God's going to be with us and we're going to enjoy that time. But, but really what the Bible says in Hebrews 11 is that there's something else going on. When Genesis says he walked with God, Hebrews tells us this. Look, look again in, in verse 5, if you would. Now, there, now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Say pleased I want you to understand that creating out of your life a place of pleasure for God requires you to become an environmental architect. Say this. I got you repeating a lot of things. It's January 2nd. Amen. (laughs) Say, I am an environmental architect. That's good. You can write it down. It might be easier sometimes. It's a lot of syllables. I know. I had to practice. So to be, to be fair, I, I did not just do that for the first time. The word there that says he pleased God, that Greek word is the word oresko. And here's what that word means. I want you to, this is the key that unlocks 
what it looks like to set that date on December 31st of 2022 that I want to be a place where God's presence will dwell. I want to be a place by the end of this year where he wants to stop just like my son wants to stop at QT where when God is breezing through the area, he sees you and says, I'm going to step over that way and I'm going to be with that person. On December 31st, you want to become that kind of oasis for the presence of God. This is what it looks like on January 2nd. It looks like adopting a life that architects a resco in your existence. A resco means this. It means to accommodate oneself to the opinions, the desires, and the interests of others. To accommodate oneself to the opinions, the desires, or the interests of another. We will remove the word opinions and put the word truth because we're not talking about humans, we're talking about God now. So what it means to create a place in your life that that incites the pleasure of God. focus on to serve, to agree with, and to draw attention to who God is and what God is saying. That's a long sentence. I'm going to say it again. See, I'm starting out a little bit aggressive this, this year, but I think if we start here, man, what happens if we'll walk this out? See, let me just take a quick aside. It gets me in time trouble, but I believe that God wants me to do it sometimes. If everyone who attends Fair Forest Church of God, in person, online. If we're walking in a life that becomes an oasis of pleasure for the presence of God, can you imagine what happens when we gather together in worship, all of us, places that God wants to be, and suddenly the presence of God is in this house in a way that we have never experienced the likes of before. Sam. I still, to this day, I'm just not satisfied with normal. I'm not satisfied with average. I'm not satisfied with a relationship with God that looks very similar to people who don't have a relationship with God. I'm not interested in a life that is not in some way unique or, as Peter says in the New Testament, peculiar. I'm not worried about people thinking I'm weird. I'm worried about people thinking I'm normal. Because if I become a place where the presence of God exists, and if we become a church filled up with people that that are, are carrying the presence of God because we've created an atmosphere of the pleasure of God, then suddenly we become a kind, the kind of place where when strangers walk in, they're literally walking into the place where God is pleased to be, which means sinners walk into a place where God's pleasure dwells, which means salvation takes place there. And when we become a place filled up with people that are inciting the pleasure of God in our lives, then when broken people walk in, the healing of God dwells there. I want to see. Like I want to see people walk through the back doors of the sanctuary on Sundays 
walk into the fellowship space. It's over there. I keep pointing toward the road. Maybe we'll meet in the road someday. I don't know. But, but over there in the fellowship center, I, I want people to walk in those doors. And long before I've ever said a word or we've played a note of a song, that they realize that they're in the very presence of the almighty God, the creator who loved them and who died on a cross for them, who rose from the grave for them. That, that's what I long for. I long, I, I'm going to preach, okay? Um, you, you guys know that by now, I hope. I'm going to preach hours and hours and hours of sermons this year. I'm probably going to preach about three years worth of sermons just this year. But that's not the answer. It's my calling. It's my vocation. It's my purpose. But that's not the answer. The answer is the presence of God. The answer for you is not another book. The answer for you is not saying the right words. The answer for you is not just having that one little nugget of wisdom. The answer for you in your life is the presence of God. The only thing that will change things that cannot be changed in your life is the presence of God. And I think at some point there's got to be a part of us that is ferociously dedicated to creating in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, in our behavior, in our life, a place that God wants to be. I'm not saying you're without failure. I'm not saying you're without fault. I'm not saying you're without mistake. What I'm saying is, is that you're on a journey from a place where we're starting today to a place where we want to be at the end of this year. And we're saying, even if I fall down, I keep moving in that direction. Even if I stumble, I keep moving in that direction because I've set a goal at the end of this year that I want to be a place where God wants to be more than he wants to be anywhere else in this world. And that means that I might go through trial and tribulation, sorrow and failure. But I know that if I will get up and keep moving forward, I will reach that place where his presence is continually with me. Where his presence, not just that God is with me all the time, he's omnipresent, he's all over the place, I don't mean that. I mean that the power of God is with you. See, Enoch's story is not powerful because he went to be with God before he was laid in a grave. That's, that's the part we like. God called him to be with himself. He never had to die physically, it seems. But that's not the power of the story. The power of the story is not that Enoch went to be with God early. It's powerful because God came to be with him. I'm afraid that we've created, uh, this is my last little rant, I promise, and I'll move on. I think we've created a zero-sum game out of salvation too much of the time, which means this. We've made salvation out to be about heaven and hell. But salvation is actually about a restored relationship with God. Salvation is, in a way, initially, about an eternal destination. But after you're saved, which most of the people in this room would probably confess to me that you have been saved, you know Jesus. If you're not, then let me just tell you, he loved you, he came to this world when he didn't have to, he died on a cross for you so your sins could be forgiven. He was laid inside of a grave just like you and I will be, except he rose from that grave after three days to tell us that death would not be the end for us if we would put our faith and our trust in him. We ask him for forgiveness, we say we've offended and wronged you because you are God, and then we allow him to forgive us of our sins by the mercy that is provided by his blood. If you can say help to God, then you can be saved and on your way to a place other than hell this morning. So if you're not there, this is your moment. But most of us in this room I'm preaching to have made that decision. It just seems that we're maybe sometimes more concerned about getting to heaven than getting God into us. But what will change your life is this very day letting the presence of God come into your space, not just hoping one day you make it to his. This is the story of Enoch. An environmental architect, which you are and I am, 
creates a place where the presence of God is our priority. Let me give you one explanation. This is not about this morning, so I actually have some leeway here. I'm a pastor. Every Sunday, I stand on this stage. I look at you guys. I try and encourage you from the scriptures. I'm going to preach to you. I'm going to do my best to exhibit and, 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 and exemplify the excitement that is in my heart. I legitimately am excited about Jesus Christ. I am legitimately passionate about him and his presence. That's not a lie. I'm not putting on any show. But can I also tell you, I am very human, which means that, and maybe, you, maybe this resonates, not every Sunday morning is the greatest Sunday morning of all time. I wake up with headaches on Sunday mornings. I don't sleep well on Saturday nights. I have two children that like to leave their shoes everywhere. We don't always have the breakfast food that I want. Sometimes the coffee tastes bad. Traffic can be frustrating at times. All that happens to me too. You're not the only ones that deal with that on Sunday mornings. Can I just tell you, I'm just the one that has to grin and bear it and preach from God's word every Sunday. But here's what I've found to be true in your life and in my life. What we experience each day has far more to do with the environment that we've created than the circumstances that surround us. What we experience each day has far more to do with the environment that we've created than the circumstances that surround us. So let me tell you, some of you don't like traffic, some of you don't like the interstate. But if you get into a mood, man, where maybe you had some time, a little extra time, read the Bible that morning, You've got some music playing in the car that causes you to feel the presence of God. Maybe some of you even weep on the way to work because the presence of God is in that space with you. Can I just tell you, isn't it amazing that in those moments, traffic doesn't seem to be quite as bad? Can I just tell you, we still live in South Carolina and people still don't know how to drive? It's just that you have created an environment where the pleasure of God exists and suddenly the circumstances that surround you don't affect you the same way. If you walk into your house and you're angry all the time, if you're constantly fed up and tired, then you will create an environment where other people get snippy. I've seen this in my own life as well. I'll just, I'll just lay all my cards on the table. I don't mind a bit. Uh, when I come home and, and I am short in my, uh, in, in my patience, when I, when I am grumpy, I don't know if that's the right face for grumpy, but that's how I feel when I'm grumpy. I find that my kids argue more. Because I'm creating an environment that they're living in. You are creating an environment with your decisions. You are architecting an environment. You are creating a culture. So what does it look like to flip that on its head and say, if I can create a negative culture in my life, then I can create a positive culture for God. I can create a positive culture for God. Enoch pleased God. Enoch decided that what God said, what God did, and what God wanted was of greater worth and greater value than what he said, what he did, or what he wanted. And in that moment, Enoch architected out of his life a place where God wanted to be. We hear the word culture a good bit in our world. And culture, by definition, is really just 
the way things are done. So you have a culture in your home. Um, some people, I, we, we don't necessarily, but, but some people I know uh, when I was in school, especially if I go to, over to somebody's house, you would have to take your shoes off at the door. So once you came inside, you slipped your shoes off and then you walked in your sock feet or bare feet through other house. I thought that was weird. I, I never grew up that way. We didn't live that way. Uh, we just, I just had a mom that cleaned up constantly after me when I would walk in. So that, that, was, that was the culture of our house. But um, we didn't take our shoes off. And so uh, some of you have a culture at work, right? So uh, you have certain ways that you do things. You have email headers. You have certain reports that you fill out in a certain way. You have certain safety things at floor. Uh, every meeting that we started, we had a safety topic and what we call a value creation topic. And that meant that no meeting ever was supposed to start at floor until we had a safety topic and a value creation topic, then the meeting could begin. That was a part of the culture of the place that we worked. It wasn't special. It was just the way that we did things. Churches have a culture. If you are in this place, we worship different here than they do at Lutheran churches in the same city. Even though 99% of our doctrine is exactly the same. We differ in the way that we do things. That's what culture is. And and so uh, you're, you're creating a culture in your life by your decisions and your choices. Enoch created a culture in his life. I, I read this story about a, uh, a doctor. I promise I'm getting close to the end. It just feels like I'm rambling, but I'm not. I'm really going somewhere. And he was trying to raise the hand-washing compliance threshold at the hospital that he worked at. The hand-washing threshold needed to be at 90% for the hospital to maintain accreditation. But they were near 80%. They had tried everything they could think of, but they could not raise it. A lot of people just didn't want to wash their hands. So they were afraid of being audited. So long story short, he called a meeting of some of the top doctors in the hospital and some of the administrators in the hospital, and they had a lunch meeting. Now, as a part of that meeting, they took all of their hands and they pressed them into something called an agar plate. That agar plate had a Petri dish inside that had chemicals in that Petri dish. And so as they pressed their hand into it, it was a part of an experiment. And so they took those away and took them down to the lab. Now, some of you know what this is. When I say the word culture, you didn't think of society. You thought of the doctor's office because you'll take a culture of something. You know that stick that's about that long that they jab into the back of your throat to check for strep? They're taking a sample to put inside of a culture to see if what you have is actually strep. COVID, they had the long stick, they pushed it into your brain, wriggled it around for a while, bring it back out. That's, they're taking a sample from something that's up there farther than anyone has ever gone and they're going to lay it on something that they have created. What they've created is called a culture. The culture is the environment that causes the bacteria or the virus to thrive and it maximizes its growth so that you can see it faster than you would normally be able to see it. Are you with me so far? So, They took their hands and pressed them in. This was after lunch, by the way, after they'd eaten their turkey wraps and their sandwiches barehanded. They pressed them into this agar plate. They took it down, and they found that there were scores of bacteria on their hands. So what they did was they took those pictures and brought them back near the end of that meeting after taking photographs through a microscope of them. They had been expanded, and some of them actually physically got sick because they realized what they were eating, with the, what was on their hands while they were eating those turkey wraps. They took those pictures, and they sent them out through the servers so that on everyone's machine on everyone's laptop and desktop that was on the enterprise server, their mandated screensaver and desktop background was a picture of all the bacteria from the hands of the administrators of the hospital. Hand washing went through the roof. 
nearly 100% compliance. Because a culture is something that maximizes the growth of something that you put in it. The culture of your life will maximize the growth of what touches it. So what is the culture of your life designed to grow? This is my question. What have your decisions created in terms of the environment of your heart? What is what you're watching, what you're reading, what you're listening to, who you're listening to? What are your relationships doing to create the culture of your heart? Because listen, there is a way to create a culture in your heart so that when God comes near, his presence grows and expands and is optimized. But there is also a way to create a culture in your heart that when God comes near, his growth in your life is stifled. Enoch, and so what is the answer? Well, it's Oresco. It's when we stop assuming that our truths, our opinions, and our desires are the most important things about us. God's truth, God's desires, and God's interests are actually the most important things about us. Now, people don't like that, and it's okay. I probably should have said that first and then dovetailed into some happy stories about how people are successful, but I didn't, because I love you. What is the culture of your life uniquely designed to optimize? This is my question. The decisions you're making, the places you're going, the people that you're spending a lot of time with, are those things going to get you to your goal at the end of this year to become a place where the pleasure of God wants to dwell? Or do you need to make some changes? Donna Sue, would you please come? I've got about five minutes left here. And you can translate that to 10 if you want to. In the Greek, five actually means 10. So I want to tell you there's two results from creating an environment that pleases God. There's actually more, but these are two that I want to tell you. So prepare yourself. First of all, pleasing God gives us access to the resources of God. Pleasing God gives us access to the resources of God. So if you came home, especially if you have small children, but it doesn't matter, whoever's in your household, this, this would be a shock probably to most of us. If you come home, long day, and you sit down, people meet you at the door, walk you over to the most comfortable seat in the living room, they take your shoes off of you. I've got weird socks on today, but there we go. They take your shoes off and they start to rub your feet. They bring you an iced tea. In my household, they would turn on the 2001 National Championship game when my Miami Hurricanes won their fifth ring. They recline the seat and they say, Father, is there anything that we can do for you? In that kind of weird, bizarro fantasy environment, when somebody is buttering you up, what is the first thing that we say? Exactly. Because we know instinctively that someone who creates an environment of pleasure for us has access to the things that we uniquely have. If you look at the book of Esther, chapter five, I don't have time to go into the whole story, but I love this part of the story. Esther, who has gained the king's favor, 
has been challenged by Mordecai, her uncle. We think he's her uncle. And he says, they are going to kill all of your people. You are going to be the only Hebrew left in this nation. You've got to do something. God has called you to such a time as this, in such a place as this, to make sure that you figure out how to rescue your people. She's like, I don't know what to do. He says, well, you got to figure it out. And she says, okay, well, all y'all fast and pray because I don't have a plan. She walks into the king's court in chapter five of Esther and the king sees her, beautiful Esther. And he looks at her, his right-hand man, Haman, is with him. And he looks out and he says, my wife, my queen, I love you. I will give you anything that you want up to half of my kingdom. Listen to what he says. I'll give you everything that I have right up to the line where I cease to be somebody who can give you everything. I'll give you all of it. And she looks at him and she says, with half the kingdom on the table, she says, you know what I want? If I could have anything in this world, please hear me, this is so powerful. If I could have anything in this world, if I could get you to give me anything, the thing that I would want is for you and Haman to come eat dinner, a feast that I'm going to prepare for you. Can I tell you, if I asked my kids, you can have anything that you want up to half the bank account, they would not say, daddy, we want to feed you. He says, okay, we'll show up. So they go to the feast. He says to her, this has been wonderful. The food has been incredible. You've served us, you've loved me. You have made this a place of pleasure for me. Can I give you anything? Up to half my kingdom, my lovely queen, I will give you anything. What does she say? I want you to come to a feast tomorrow. Twice, twice she has offered everything and she says, what I want more than anything is to serve you. What I want more than anything is to create a place of pleasure for you. Listen, because Esther knows that what she's actually going to have to ask the king is an enormous thing to change legislation, to change wheels that are already in motion. She is going to have to change something that's going to rescue and save an entire nation. And if she's going to get that done, the best move that she could think of was to create a place of pleasure for the king who held that power in his hands. Can I tell you something? When you create a place of pleasure for God in your life, all of God's resources are at your disposal. I heard somebody say this years ago. I love the way it sounds, though I, I deeply disagree with the person that I heard say it the first time. But he said, when a kid is bad, you don't give them ice cream because that creates a psychopath. If you reward bad behavior, you create somebody who does more bad things so they can get more good things. God is not forsaking people who are broken. I want you to hear me. But also God rewards those who seek him. For if you will seek me with your whole heart, you will find me. And in his presence, there is joy and pleasure forevermore. She says, I wanna, I wanna serve you because in the environment where we serve him, we have access to the resources and the power of God. Second, in some way we read in Enoch's story that pleasing God somehow affects the way that we experience death. It says in the scriptures that Enoch was taken. He was no more. God took him 
it says this in a way that is so strange and nearly unprecedented for us that we don't know how to make sense of really what that text means. Except that Enoch was here and then he was not. That's it. We know that God is the one who took him because the Bible tells us that, which means it seems that Enoch was simply taken into a greater depth of the presence of God. Perhaps if we look at the rest of the scriptures, God took him into his presence in a heavenly sense so that he could experience more of God's presence than he was capable of in his human form. Death isn't the same when you've architected an environment of pleasure by seeking to value and honor God. I've been to funerals that were very difficult. I've officiated funerals that were very difficult. Oftentimes, if someone didn't know Christ, people are asking questions, wondering why. I officiated a funeral for a 24-year-old young man who spent six days in a coma. I don't know that he knew the Lord or not. But I know it was completely different to the feeling of officiating a funeral for a 65-year-old woman who passed away who had been walking with the Lord for the last 50 years. Death is different when you've created a place of pleasure for God. And here's what I want to tell you. Would you stand with me, please? God is the desire of your heart he will give you the desire of your heart do you hear me when God is the desire of your heart he will absolutely every time give you the desire of your heart I thought about this even on the way to church this morning I, I struggle with how to end the sermon I don't have like a story that really you know makes you tear up or drives the point home I, I just I had this and and I think a lot, of us, a lot of us have spent a lot of time over the last couple of years not getting what we wanted. I think the pandemic has created an environment that has left us very unsatisfied with life in many cases. There have been pockets of joy and most of us have soldiered on and we've done our best to make the best of it, but things are not the same as they once were and there's no denying that that creates a different kind of feeling. And, and I know that there are things that I want in my life. There are things that I desire in my life and I just don't have them. When I first got saved, I prayed to God for months that he, my, I'm next to blind, basically. I wear contacts now. You've seen me wear glasses a couple times. And I remember just wanting, uh, when I first got saved, when I first really surrendered my heart to Christ, I said, God, I believe you. I know you're here. I sense your presence. I, there's no doubt in my mind, but I would just love to have my eyes healed. I prayed for months about that. I fasted and I prayed for that. Here I am, still wearing contacts. Like life, even the Christian life, if I, can I just be honest with you? Even the Christian life leaves us dissatisfied in a lot of ways. The one thing, the one thing that has never, I, I'm telling you to this day, that has never failed to actually happen is when I plead with God for his presence to come near, that his presence doesn't come near. It might not change everything in my situation. It might not make all the wrongs right. It might not heal all the broken places. I might still feel sick. I might still have to wear contacts, but his presence has been near every time. And I truly believe that when his presence is the desire of our hearts, he will absolutely every time without fail, guaranteed, give us the desire of our hearts. 
you won't experience your life of disappointment. You won't experience a life where your body is slowly running down and heading toward a grave. You won't experience the difficulties or the frustrations or the dissatisfactions of life. You won't experience the sorrows of life. You won't experience the the pain of life the same way when the presence of God is near you. It doesn't mean that it erases all of it. What it means is that you have a resource and and it changes your experience of things because you've created an environment where the pleasure of God dwells and suddenly where the pleasure of God dwells come what may come all things from all sides enemies all over the place and yet still I praise my God and I honor him he changes the way that I'm experiencing the moments of difficulty he changes the way that I'm experiencing the moments of frustration and he'll do the same for you And I think so many times we're seeking a result. We're seeking an end. We've given God a plan for success and said, God, will you carry out this plan? And what he's actually telling us is, why won't you just seek my presence? Because my presence changes everything. So December 31st, I've got it down. I want to be in a greater way this year, a place where the pleasure of God wants to exist, where where God finds, excuse me, where God finds pleasure I want to be a place where God finds pleasure. I want to change my life. I want to change my rhythms. I want to change my habits. I want to change my decisions. I want to change my attitude. I want to change what I'm putting into my mind and what's coming out of my mouth. I want to say things differently. I want to speak in ways that brings life instead of death. I want to create an atmosphere. I want to architect an environment so that God I hope it happens in February, but if not, I'm going to walk this journey out so that by the end of this year, In a greater way, God sees me and says, this is a place that I want to be more than I've ever wanted to be here in the course of your life with me. That doesn't mean I'm not saved. It doesn't mean you're not saved. It just means that I realize that the presence of God means more to me than everything else in this world. And I challenge you on January 2nd of 2022, will you start there with me?